History lecture, uh, lecture 45, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We are um, we gave the backdrop to the Greek conquest and the various dynamics of the time. And yesterday we talked about uh, the, the first sects and the translation of the uh, Septuagint for the 72 Kohanim. We talked about the leaders of the, of, of the door, the Zugos, the beginning of the period of the Zugos. All these things are happening simultaneously, overlapping. And as, of course, is the, is the gradual but unmistakable infiltration of Greek influence, of Hellenist culture that sweeps up much of the world and the Jews get caught up with it too. Um, especially, you know, Jews have a tendency, we see this today, and it's certainly true back in the day here, um, that whatever they do, they tend to excel at. <clears throat> so when it came to um, the various corruption that the Greek culture would lead to, the leading the, the, the um, pursuit of the mind, the uh, celebration of the body uh, to an extreme, that's going to cause lots of corruption and it's going to lead to lots of intrigue, a lot of backstabbing and, and, and um, political mechanisms, all kinds of problems are going to happen. And we're, I'm going to tell, tell some of the stories we have to recognize. I'm skipping over a lot of it. It makes maybe for a good soap opera, uh, but that's, that's it not, I, I only include those nuggets, those, those, those bits and pieces of history that directly pertain, but you should realize that the culture is conducive to um, individuals grabbing at what they can and backstabbing and literally, literally uh, uh, stepping uh, over um, competitors. Now, they do this to try to, many individuals try to win favor with the various rulers. They'll collect steep taxes. They, and they don't have any qualms, they have no problems doing so to try to, uh, you know, make as much money as they can and all in order to get higher positions and various privileges. We know that this, uh, well, and, and, and all this is happening while the various different empires, particularly around our part of the world, the Ptolemies against the, uh, the, 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 the Selvekim, they are vying for their own power. And at one point, one of the Ptolemies, one of the, one of the Ptolemaic rulers, will um, lead a rampage, massacre, kill many, many Jews. Um, finally, in the north, Antiochus of Aram, who's the grandfather of the famous Antiochus of the Hanukkah story, Antiochus, of the, uh, uh, he will finally vanquish the Ptolemies. And remember, it's been back and forth between the two. So this is the next round that Seleucids are on top now, and they conquer at least part of Eretz Israel back. Now, again, as the as you know, the Jews say, okay, we don't have to now win favor with the Ptolemies. Let's go up and win favor with Antiochus, and they um, they will do anything, and they represent a dramatic new low that the Jewish people have never known before. In contrast with the wicked during Bais Rishon. You remember, even Izevel was okay if you led a Torah lifestyle. She tolerated Ovadia, her servant. That was okay. He, as long as he wasn't seditious, as long as he, as long as he didn't pose a threat uh, to, to her plans, that was fine with her. But that's not going to be the case with the Hellenists. The Hellenists want you to be like them. And if you don't, you represent a threat to their whole existence. Um, and they will ultimately come to decree death on anybody who, keep the, who keeps uh, the Torah. So, this is the backdrop. And uh, the fourth Antiochus eventually emerges. 
He's the one who's called Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes or Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means the great, but the Jews had a different name they like to call him. They called him Antiochus Epimanus, which is Greek for the Meshuganah. Play on words, Jews were always clever with the, with the twisted phrase. And he's the fourth, fourth Antiochus, he emerges. He's the new king and he's, he's a brute. But the real, this is not always appreciated about the Hanukkah story, the real villains of the Hanukkah story were actually the local Hellenized Jews. And I'll give you a couple of names. There was a certain fellow by the name of Yeshua, a shortened version of Yehoshua, Joshua, who will Greekify his life and actually adopt a more Greek name, Yason, Jason, which is odd, an odd choice of name. I know some Jewish Jasons today, and I don't think that they knew what they were, what they were doing when they gave their child the name Jason. The, uh, so Yeshua becomes Yason, and he, in, in, in buying favors from the king, manages to get permission from Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes to um, become the new Kohen Gadol. And this is the first and not the last time that we see such a, such a thing. You can do that, not the answer is obviously not. This is, as we say, a new low to actually barter, to buy and sell such holy positions. Uh, so he becomes the Kohen Gadol, and he could care less about the Kedusha. It's because of the centrality of the position, that's what appeals to him. The Kohen Gadol, remember, without a king, really the Sanhedrin and the Kohen Gadol are the de, de facto, default leaders of the Jews, they're the ones who are making all the decisions, and so if you have the job, you get, you get all the perks. Question, yes? Um, it, wasn't, it was only an official kingship, so if, like today, we follow the Zadar because we trust the Zadar, if they knew that the guy was just some guy who bought the position, and I think that, yeah, great, great, Excellent question. Excellent question, Alan. If they knew that the guy was just some guy, so then he would you would think logically not have authority, but now you have to picture the complexity of Klal Yisrael as it was in these days. Many had were, were varying degrees of Hellenized themselves, so that if the person had the position and it looked like something, it wasn't that many years ago that the Gadol Hador was a combination of all of the above. Shimon Atzadi, remember, was Kohen Gadol, and he was the Nasi, the Abbasian, it was everything packaged in one. So who are you to disagree? And it was confusing. And you're right, some would resist, but then what were they supposed to do when he came around collecting taxes? He had henchmen, he had policemen, and uh, an authority, and you didn't. Now, the Ant Ant Antiochus was, was evil. Yasun is even more so. He goes further. He tries to take the Jews and to have them rebel against Hashem. And he does several things. I'll, I'll cite a few. First of all, his goal is to create a classic Greek Polis. Polis meaning city, metropolis being a major city, this is a polis. He wants to create all the accoutrements, all the trappings of a classic Greek city. Um, he wants to build a gymnasium to celebrate the human body. He wants to build a sports arena, stadium. He wants to educate the local youth in the ways of Greek culture. He'll undermine the Sanhedrin's authority because, of course, they're vying for the Torah interest. And he'll, he'll um, marginalize the, uh, the Torah Jews. And he gets support. There's a growing number of Jews, Hellenized Jews. Many of them apparently seem, are uncircumcised. It's one way of rebelling against Hashem. 
certainly a very potent one, going explicitly against the covenant. In one episode, he takes a group of Jewish youth, and here's one way to indoctrinate them, and he sends them uh, to the Olympic Games up in Sor, which is up the coast in today's Lebanon area, um, so they should participate in the Olympic Games that are being played up there. Now, the youth, think about this. If you're growing up in these days, and even if you're from a Torah family, well, you could be part of the suppressed, uh, oppressed, downtrodden Jews, um, or you've got this exciting, fast-paced, glitzy Greek culture. The odds are against the uh, Torah world. And so many of these youth come from good backgrounds but go astray. Some of them don't come from good backgrounds at all because you remember the population explosion that's taking place now, the poor education that many are receiving or no education at all. So all of this is a, is, is a, is a recipe for, uh, for disaster. The youth go up to Tzor. The story goes that they were ashamed. They you competed in the, in, the, in the Olympics, of course, by not wearing clothes. They were ashamed. They're, they hid their mila the sign of the covenant, um, and ultimately they become part of the Olympics, and what you do is you actually worship the gods, the various pagan deities of the Greek empire. And once you start getting involved in that, it becomes a, it's, it, its own, it sets a spell, and uh, these, these, these kids and others would uh, certainly become Hellenized, go off the derech. Now, part of the intrigue takes place in these times. Yason, Jason, has a friend named Chonyo. We find lots of Chonyos in this period. Not the same as the other Chonyos we've, we've met before. Um, and this friend, who was originally Chonyo, changes his name and takes a Greek name. He's called Menelaus. And I don't know if you've heard the story of Hanukkah. One often hears the, the story told about Jason and Menelaus. Um, right? So these are, these are our uh, two anti-heroes. And he sends, Jason, Yason, sends his friend Menelaus to go pay taxes to the king. And Menelaus goes to the king and he says, here are taxes, your highness, uh, Antiochus, and I'm paying this to you. They're taxes that I've raised. He's claiming that they're from him and not from Jason. Um, and in exchange, king, would you make me the new Kohen Gadol? I'd like to, uh, you know, take the position now. And the king says yes. He's into all the corruption that he can take because he knows the, he knows the game. He knows that um, Yasser will come back with his own money to bribe him again to get the, to get the position again. And the, the, the game will go around. Menelaus now, now returns to Jerusalem. He brings the king's soldiers with him. And he literally physically grabs the position from Yasso and he takes the big day kahuna and he assumes the position. Yasso, for his part, is in the threat of his life. So he, he flees to Amon, to a neighboring country. Um, what's particularly odd about this, Yason in buying the Kohen, buying the Kahuna was at least a Kohen. Menelaus doesn't, he's not even from a, the, the, he's not even from the priestly caste. He's not a Kohen. But that doesn't matter at this point. The whole thing has become so far corrupt that, um, what's the difference? Um, with all of these, with all of these intrigues, we know that the, uh, the Greeks will, there are more non-Jews who are present in Yerushalayim and around, around the, the, uh, the, the kingdom of Yehuda. Um, and suddenly there is a rumor that circulates that the big bad king, Antiochus, has died. And understandably, many of the good guys, our friends, our, our, the, the Jewish, the Torah community, celebrate the rumor that he's died. 
and it was just a rumor. And the king finds out what has happened, and he goes. He sends his he sends his soldiers down to Yerushalayim, and they it's it's yet another massacre. A great slaughter takes place. Survivors, and these are the images. Now I mentioned this yesterday. These are the images that resemble the Shoah, the Holocaust. Survivors are sent are sent into slavery. Many escape. They'll hide out in the forest. I don't know your your knowledge of what happened in the Shoah, but I think of the partisans hiding out from the Nazis. Uh, I think the comparison is apt. And um, increasingly, more Greeks, non-Jews, are moving to Jerusalem and taking over. The king, with his uh, with Menelaus, his flunky, the Kohen Gadol, in, installed in the in the in the position of the base of Mikdash, plunder the base of Mikdash. And they, um, they take over, they change the nature of the Avoda, they build what's called a Beit Olympius, exactly in the Kodesh, in the holy part of the temple itself. The king understands that his victory, the fact that he's vanquished the Jews, is a sign from Hashem that I'm doing God's work to oppress the Jews, and therefore I can do whatever I want in his house. And they build a major fortress, it's called the Chakra. The Chakra, which is a classically Greek fortress, they build it down in the lower city somewhere. Somewhere, if you can, can you picture the map of Jerusalem? Let's say today, lower city, maybe it's somewhere between the temple area and the lower city, what's called Ir David today. They build this big Chakra fortress, and um, it's deliberately built to be even taller than the base of Mikdash. It's formidable. Uh, the purpose is that Greek rulers and their guards and their, and their soldiers should have a safe refuge. They stock up supplies for potential long siege because they realize that the traditional Jewish community is not pleased and will maybe one day fight back and want to uh, take over Yushalayim. And so the fortress right in the heart of the city is prepared for such an eventuality. It says at one point, we have, we have uh, the, the Gemara says, V'yimshuhu or lasam. In terms of many of the Jews who were receptive, who were welcoming the Greek incursion, says that they, well, it's not so clear what they did with their orla, with that part of the male body. They took, some say that they took their circumcised male body parts and they stretched the skin back to try to recreate the uncircumcised effect. Um, others said that they actually did an operation to sew back on some dead skin so that they would look like they had an orla from the, uh, to, to compete with the, in, in the Greek Olympics and so on. And others said that no, it had, it's, it's an expression that comes up elsewhere in Shas and it means it's, they, they, they uh, were physical in that area it meant that they were profligate, immodest, and did all kinds of crazy things in that area. They intermarried, they committed abominations, they were, uh, they were Greek in, all, in all, of the, um, all the various nuances that the word conveys. Uh, we know that this is all happening simultaneously. The Greek, the Greek society was, was very, very influential, and the Kutim up north, the Shomronim, also became heavily Hellenized. Um, they will then take their mikdash, their holy place of worship, and now newly dedicated to the Greek gods. So it's really all Greek to me. Everywhere you go, that's the wave of the world, and it seemed like there was no way you could do otherwise. One of the reasons why it's instructive to study history is you see a world 
where maybe if we were alive at this time, we might have the feeling of hopelessness. What is the purpose of carrying on Torah when the whole wave of the future is already upon us and why bother resisting it? If after all, the Greek culture is not so nasty as, you know, as maybe in comparison with some of the other cultures, let's just play along. And that you can understand this, this attitude of yeyush, of, you know, it's kind of giving in, giving up, uh, set in with the Jews. Today, similar kinds of things happen. You know, you read about the American Jewish experience in America, Right, when they first got to America and the feeling of the overwhelming feeling of this is the way it is, the culture being the seductive culture and many Jews who were traditional but just couldn't resist and especially since it was all about making money, the idea of working on Shabbos at the beginning of the 20th century in most workplaces, labor unions had not yet in, in, insisted on a five-day work week. So to get a job, any job, in the Golden Medina, where the whole purpose was to make money, weren't the streets paved with gold after all, you had to compromise on Shabbos. You had to go to work. That's why the, the Hashkama Minyan, anybody know of the, the old-timers Hashkama Minyan, on Shabbos morning, they went to shul early, on, early in the morning, and then after shul, they went to work. And that was just the way it was, because you were in America. What were you supposed to do? And the, the feeling that it was just, this is what was uh, the, the wave of the future, and who am I, this, this poor, difficult, this poor, downtrodden individual? I can't resist that. In um, a wonderful book that I re- recommended many times, I continue to, All for the Boss. So she describes her, her mother hanging a tzitzi on the line outside their window. They didn't have fancy uh, Maytag dryers back in the day. So she was hanging out her son's and her husband's uh, tzitzi on the line, and other Jewish neighbors criticized her. They said, you can't wear those here. You can't have your sons and your father, your husband wearing such things in the Golden of Medina. They'll never get a job. And that was the attitude. And you know, with a little historical insight, you, you realize we can get, we got through the Greek period. We can get through this today. Torah always outlives everybody else. An episode from this period we know took place on Yud Zion Batamuz. It's a question exactly when it took place. Some people say it happened much later. That's yeah, okay, I couldn't agree more. Um, and on the 17th of Tammuz, a, a Greek minister by the name of Apostumus burns the Tyra on a place called Gesher Lod out near today's airport on a bridge out in a big city named Lod, of Lod. And it's one of the five things cited in the Mishnah in Tainis that we fast for on that day was the burning of the Torah, which was literal, but even more than literal, it was really symbolic. It was what was going on. I'm going to go down now. I'm going to do a quick survey as the oppression built, as the Greeks became more influential, what, in fact, uh, the Jews endured during these very, very difficult times. The Jews, will, many of them flee Eretz Israel. And those who remain suffer the following new decrees. First of all, uh, early on, the Greeks decreed that Bikurim were now prohibited. No Jews were allowed to bring first fruit. What do they care? But they cared. They cared because they knew if the Jews persisted with observing mitzvahs, they would resist becoming part of the mainstream Greek culture. So now there's a, there's, they're outlawed. They're not allowed to bring the new fruit to the base Mikdash to present to the Kohanim in baskets with the, with the fanfare. Um, they assigned Hellenized kutim, shomronim, to guard the roads and make sure that no Jews were found bringing their first fruits to the base of Mikdash. I don't know if you know this about us. We're a tough 
bunch Jews. And we find a way. So the Gemara Tainis tells a great story about um, clever Jews getting around the decree. And high, they had these big things called tvelos, these massive fig cakes, pressed figs against this big, in, in, in a big wheel uh, that made, that made a, an ancient dessert, a fig cake, and that was kind of a standard thing back in the day. And they made hollow sections in the middle of this big fig cake where they hid their new fruits. And as they're going on the road, then the inspectors would come, the Shemoni would come and say, hey, hey, do you have any new fruits? You're trying to bring me corn. And the Jews said, nope, nothing like that. We just, had our, we just have our fig cakes. And they let them pass, and they, ran, and they got around, and they, brought them, they did the mitzvahs anyway. Uh, another decree, they're not allowed to bring wood for the maracha to bring uh, sacrifices to the base of Mikdash. And also the Gemara Tainis tells us that the Jews would pass as um, handymen, janitors, and among other things, they carry big wooden ladders on their backs. It's just, just I need the ladder for my work. And then, of course, they take the ladders and convert them to the wood and be able to, uh, to, 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 to use them at least for a period to make some mikdash until that was taken over too. When that was taken over, the Greeks outlawed korbanos, including the korban tamid, no more daily offerings. When they impurified the base of mikdash, instead of offering to Hashem, they built bamos, in the base of Mikdash, they also built them all around, all around in every city, in every district where Jews lived. There were new bamos to the gods, small g. They offered on these bamos chazir, pig, and other, other impure animals. In the base of Mikdash itself, they deliberately brought prostitutes. They brought, they did all kinds of unspeakable acts right there in the chatzros, uh, the, uh, the courtyards in the base of Mikdash itself. There's a prohibition in these Greek times, um, there's a prohibition against using the term Yehudi. Jews could not call themselves Jews. That was outlawed by the Greeks. I mean, it's, again, you think about those times, you think about our times, assimilation was in. If you did anything that was distinctively Jewish, that was somehow a throwback. And in the Greek days, it outlawed a picture of the Jews changing their names in the, in the, in the various uh, Western societies, especially America, where they went to blend in. Uh, right? Bernie Schwartz became, uh, I don't know what, uh, you know, Bram Smith or something along, something along those lines, something, something particularly non-Jewish sounding. The... Uh, and then, of course, they went for the jugular. They outlawed three major areas of observance. And this part is famous. If you've ever been to a Dvar Torah, if you've ever heard of Dvar Torah on Hanukkah, you'll, you almost certainly will hear them uh, this year, coming up in a few weeks. And actually, if you pay attention now, I'm going to give you a bunch of Dvar Torah. What were the three big areas of, of observance that the Greeks went against? You know this. Shabbos, Brismila, the Kfiyas HaChodoshim, the, the, the establishing of the new months. Those were the three. Uh, those are the three areas of observance that they that they outlawed. And when you outlaw the fixing of the new months, mimela automatically. What else are you really doing away with? All the holidays. You can't have any moadim. You can't have any holidays if nobody's setting the new month. So really, they went after the whole calendar, the calendar, and of course, Brismila, which is in. They went after those aspects of observance that connected us with Hashem, with Jewish culture, with Jewish practice. Um, in, when, we, when we rebel, finally, and we, we resist, we celebrate Hanukkah. And part of the celebration of Hanukkah, if you notice this, this is intentional. 
Um, when Hanukkah falls on eight days, that means it falls at least on one, sometimes two Shabbos. Um, it always falls on Rosh Chodesh, and it's specifically eight days long. The eight days, of course, corresponding to Bris Mila. Meaning part of the symbolism of Hanukkah itself is the reaffirmation of Shabbos and the, uh, and the Rosh Chodesh, and the Moadim by extension, and the Bris Mila. As I said, we're a tough bunch. They outlawed teaching Torah, learning Torah. Jews are no longer allowed to come to a base medrash. They outlawed keeping basic mitzvahs. Sifrei Torah were openly burned. And then they went, they went, they, they went, they went further. Now, no houses by law were permitted to feature doors. No doors in your house. Everything was open and everybody could walk in at will whenever they wanted to any home. And they did. They took advantage of this. This was part of the practice because the Greek, when in, when in Greece, it was the Greeks, the Greek way, toga party, was to be open um, in, terms of, in terms of human intimacy. Everybody was fair game, uh, especially men, men with men and men with children and men with everything and girls was, were sort of relegated to the side. So practically what that meant for Klai Yisrael is there was no intimacy. You couldn't be with your wife because there was no chance for true modesty. You were always, so it was always a risk that somebody could walk right in and look right in and that was not acceptable. They went further. They, found, they, they, they decreed that any man whose wife toiled in a mikveh, the man would be killed the wife and the children would become slaves of the Moser, whoever told on them. So they gave incentives to people to go spying on their neighbors, catch them in the act. If you find a woman go to the mikvah, we'll kill the man and we'll give you that woman and the children to be your slaves at your will. So there was all kinds of incentives to do this. Jews stopped having relations. My wife can't go to the mikvah, then there's no, there won't be any relations. Um, and so Hashem made a miracle. Hashem, the Gemara tells us, made them, suddenly made appear mikvahs privately under their bedrooms so that nobody would ever discover that the woman had toiled in the mikvah. Um, but the Greeks didn't stop there. They make a decree that a besula, a girl who's never been with a man before, um, when she got engaged to be married, she would first have to lie with the local, what's called the hegemon, the local Greek governor, before she was with her husband. Uh, so Jews stopped getting married, because if this is the fate of poor girls who are about to get married, I'm not going to do this to a girl to force, force her to, uh, to have to be with the, the, the local non-Jew. Um, and so the Greeks went one step further, and they started grabbing randomly single girls on the street and despoiling them, despoiling them. Uh, the Greeks, is this familiar by chance? You, you, you learned about this part? We, set, we always focus on the end, the, the happy ending with the Hanukkah story, which actually doesn't end happily. Uh, we'll get to that too. But um, we, we focus on what happens later, but what happens later makes a lot more sense when you realize what we were going against uh, earlier on. They branded the cattle. Every Jewish cow on its horns had the expression, Ein lo chelik. Belokei Yisrael, he has no portion in the God of Israel. Meaning that even on a basic level of getting food, of, of farming your land, you were simultaneously, symbolically, going against Hashem. I have no portion with Hashem. They used these exact horns later on as baby bottles, and um, that meant that the babies no longer drank milk. They didn't use those baby bottles. They're not going to use a bottle that says explicitly they're going against Hashem. The Jews sold off their cattle, 
which practically meant no more meats, no more milk products, uh, no more cattle to do their harvesting, which is the way people harvest. If you notice, the Gemara is all about how you, if you're going to link your ox with your uh, the other animals and going and plowing the field, well, that's not going to happen now. There's no threshing, so making bread is going to be exceedingly difficult without cattle, without cattle to do the job for you. Um, Hashem makes a miracle, and He sends other animals, poultry and deer and uh, and rams that wander into their, well now, doorless homes, and suddenly, suddenly they have um, replacements. They have ways of surviving during the difficult times. Jews, again, will find lots of examples of them keeping mitzvahs. Many of them will succeed and now outsmart the, uh, their oppressors, but many of them will die al-Kiddush Hashem, and again, can't help but compare this, this episode with the whole episode of the Shoah, where we know of great stories where Jews at personal risk and sometimes literally dying on Kiddush Hashem, they, they uh, would not be separated from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Probably the most famous story to come from this period is a story, people know of it as Hannah and her seven sons. Familiar? Hannah and her seven sons. It's actually told in, in three different places, um, and her name is, varies in each place. In uh, the Medrash, it calls her Miriam. In the Gemara Gitin, it doesn't name who, doesn't give her a name. It's Josephus who calls her Hannah. So that seems to be the most famous. That's what people, the one people talk about. And the story is uh, the Greeks capture her. They're they're God fearing people. They capture Hannah they, and, and and her seven sons. They put them into separate rooms. They keep Hannah in the main room with the rest of the Greeks, and then they bring the oldest boy. And they say, kid, bow down to that idol. The boy's a teenager. He's got no guidance. doesn't know what he's allowed to do and what, what he can't do. But he refuses. He says, I'm not going to bow down to the idol. So the Greeks, the Greeks, right in the presence of the mother, start torturing the boy and trying to force him to, to, to worship the idol. And the boy refuses. And ultimately, the torture is so cruel and so merciless that they wind up executing him there on, on the spot in front of his mother. And they don't stop there. They bring in the next oldest boy, and the next boy, and the next boy. And the, the, the process is repeated each time more cruel than the last time. And the mother watches everything. And each refuses, and they die. Al-Kiddush Hashem, they die sanctifying God's name. Finally, they bring in the youngest. He's all of two and a half years old. And she can't take it, and she falls on the boy's. She falls down on the boy, and they say, "Please let me die first. Don't take him. Let me die first. They refuse in their uh, inhumanity. Um, when the boy is asked to bow down to the idol at two and a half years old, he says, "No, I learned I'm not allowed to do that." And they torture him and they kill him. And when he's executed, she runs up to the roof, and she jumps off the roof. And the uh, Gemara tells us, "Aim habanim smecha." The pasuk that we say, "The mother of children, she rejoices." And the idea is that if you, this is the ultimate in Kiddush Hashem, that you would that you would do this. Her suicide is not permitted. The, the Mefarshim say that her she went temporarily insane, as one can imagine under these circumstances. But these are the limits that the Jews have endured through history, and. Um, it's not the first time, it's not the last time that we're going to see Jews die in horrific deaths uh, trying to do what's right. And it's, this is the backdrop to the scene of the story of Hanukkah um, and our heroes. Uh, led by Matisyahu, son of Yochanan, son of Hashmon. 
Matisyahu ben Yochanan ben Chashmon. So Chashmon is the grandfather, and it's based on him, Chashmon Naim, that the family takes their name. They're the Hasmoneans. Matisyahu, we know, is a, was once a Kohen Gadol in Yerushalayim. He was very close. He was the peer of the first Zug, Yossi ben Yochanan and Yossi ben Yoezer. He also then received the Messirah. Do you have your Messirah chart out? He received, he's part of the um, continuing tradition um, of the Jews. Didn't I write his name here? What do we have? Yossi ben Yoezer, Yossi ben Yochanan. No. Oh, here it is. I have it. No. Excuse me. He's the next generation. He's with Yoshua ben Prachia and Nittai and Arbeli, right? So he's, that's, that's, oh no, that's Yochanan. Wrong. Okay, so according to some accounts, he's then, Matisya was part of the Messiah. He was, um, and at this time in history, we find him going into hiding in the mountains around what's called Kfar Modi'in. Do you know where Kfar Modi'in is today? We've been to Modi'in? Okay, so this won't be anything good. Anybody been out to Rav Lazarus yet? Curious Safer? Being curious, safe for fun. So that that area is considered the Modine area. Today, I think, according to the little I know about geography, that uh, I don't think many people do know about. I, I think most people don't know about geography, even if their self confidence and their, their their certainty of tone indicates otherwise. I don't think that that's logically Modine today. I think it's probably closer to Yerushalayim. I don't think we really know where Modine is. There's a place out in the area called Kivrei Maccabim. You ever been to the tombs of the Maccabees? The name is also, I don't think it makes sense that that's the real place. Um, they go into hiding in this place near Modi'in in the mountains. He goes with his five sons. Five sons, you know their names? Famous five sons, you know any of their names? Matasyao's sons? You do, you do. You do, you definitely know one of them at least. One of them is named Yehuda, Yehuda Maccabee. Judah Maccabee? Okay, but I'll tell you their names. They're very well known. Yochanan is the oldest. He's the least well known. Shimon is next. Yehuda, Elazar, and Yehonasan or Yonasan. These are the five sons, and we're going to hear a lot about them. They, they they play a very central role at this juncture in history. The five sons of Matisyahu. Um, he has a daughter too. Uh, they heroically, courageously save her from marrying the hegemon, the uh, the Greek. Council, remember that's what the Hegemons were doing, and she remains pure. They amass followers and they go into hiding preparing for war. They're guerrilla, guerrilla war warriors. They're going to uh, wage the battle underground against the dominant Greeks. And the story goes like this The dominant Greek minister in those days, plus all of his soldiers, set out to attack Matasyao. They hear about these rebels. And they're not going to have any part of it. They're going to squash them before they, they make any impact. And um, on the way, they encounter a thousand Jews in a cave, and it's Shabbos. And the Jews are keeping Shabbos in a clandestine, you know, they're secretive. They have to hide their observance of mitzvahs. And the Greeks see the sedition, the outlawed behavior, and they say, you will all now be Mechal Shabbos. And they knew exactly how to be Mechal Shabbos because in their numbers, counted among the Greeks, were a lot of Hellenized Jews who told them they knew exactly what Shabbos was. And they, and, and, you know this is true in history, that some of the greatest villains were actually Jews once, and they became apostate, apostate Jews, and they, uh, they become even more rebellious, uh, more difficult 
and, and, and oppressive to the, to the practicing Jews, and they all demand a chil Shabbos, the Jews in the cave refuse, and so they step away from the cave and throw in, um, they throw in sticks that are burning, and they, uh, they send in fire into the caves, and the options that are facing the Jews in the cave is to stay in the cave where there's no air other than smoke and be smoked out of the cave and to run out where they'll be killed by the, uh, by the Greeks. And instead, the Jews opt to stay in the cave and they all die of suffocation. The minister and his soldiers reach Modi'in and they're prepared for an attack. They build a massive altar. Uh, one of the Jewish, what's called the Paritz, uh, somebody who's uh, totally immodest, he breaks. He comes forward with a pig, with a chazir, and he's about to offer it on the altar, right then and there. And Matisyahu, without without the Greeks realizing that he's right there, prepared for the attack, charges forward with all the great wrath of Levi, Shavit Levi. What do we know about Shavit Levi? Think about think about what are the qualities. We've even mentioned this here briefly. This is already several weeks ago when we learned about it. What do you what do you remember about Levi? What are what are the distinct distinct features of Levi? Say it louder. Levi Levim are always learning Torah. But what else? What, what do we know about Levi? The actual, the, the figure Levi Ben Yaakov was born in this week's parsha. Parshas Vayetze. What do we know about Levi from really from his from his early years? I'm going to see this particularly in, in next week's parsha. What does he do? Quick to anger, for sure. They're known as having their hot-tempered uh, Levi. In next week's parshas, parshas Vayishlach, he and Shimon get together and they murder all of Shem. They kill all of Shem. It's not murder. It's legitimate, it's, uh, but it's 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 hot-tempered. It's 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 violent. It's angry. Um, what do we know about the Chita Egel, the sin of the golden calf? Right. Moshe says, "Me Lashem Eli. Who for Hashem is who is for me?" And all of the tribe of Levi congregates around Moshe Rabbeinu. And uh, they support they, they, they support Moshe Rabbeinu, but they have that zeal, that dedication. Um, Pinchas comes from Levi, and he's typical. He's Knaim Pogimbo. He's a, he's a zealot in the best sense of the term. And it's Pinchas who steps forward and kills Zimri and Kozbi Batsur when they're, about to, when they're doing this big Chil Hashem right there in public at the end of Parshish, uh, at the end of Parshish, um, Balak. They, uh, Pinchas does this. So with the same zeal, uh, of, of the tribe of Levi, Matisyahu and his sons charge forward. They decapitate the Jew who's offering the pig on the altar. They kill the Greek minister. They destroy the altar and they trounce the soldiers. And the surviving soldiers are sent running for their lives. And this effectively sets off the beginning of what's going to be an ongoing guerrilla war. It's relatively effective. They have some defeats, but they do very, very well. There's some famous battles in places like Mali Beit Choron, Emmaus, and elsewhere. Um, there's a long story to be told here, and I'm not going to tell the whole story. Um, modern Israelis tend to love the battle stuff because part of the culture in modern Israel, sadly, has to do with the army and the terrible wars that the Jews have had to fight. Uh, in the last 150 years of, of, of concentrated Jewish renewal in Eretz Israel, so this speaks to them, and they talk about the gore and the intrigue and the strategies and so on. I'm going to skip most of that because I try to learn history for the moral depth, and uh, you can only get so much of that when you talk about the wars, the different battles. Um, but there were a bunch. 
their goal clearly, as you read Chazal, is that Matisyao and his, and, his, and his sons, they're not interested in seeking national independence. They win it eventually, and they become an independent, semi-independent state, the only time in the entire Second Temple period that the Jews have sovereignty in their own land, because if you realize up until this time, we've, had, we've been a vassal state, a puppet state of the Persians, and now we are under the various Greek rulers, the Ptolemies and the, and, and the Seleucids. There'll be a period, a window of time when they're sovereign, but they weren't angling for that. Their goal was not, was not at all uh, independence. Their goal was to enable the Jews to keep mitzvahs openly, to preserve the Torah. Whatever that would, whatever they needed to do, that that's what that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to thwart the actions of the wicked. Um, again, in modern history, sometimes the secular view is, yeah, the Hasmoneans were all, all all about creating an independent state. That's what wound up happening, but that wasn't the initial purpose. Um, they fought battles with their stomachs empty because they fasted, and their chief weapon was tefillah. In fact, in the book of Chashmonaim, that's what it says. I have three or four different verses saying that exactly. They prayed to Hashem and then they went to battle. But they didn't really have many weapons. They didn't have much of a budget. They were all underground, uh, scrappy warriors. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu brought about the victory. And that's, if you notice what we say on Hanukkah, that's what we're praising. The Kaddish Baruch Hu brought by Nates, by, by, by pure. There's no way these people should have won any battle. And they won most of them. After a year of fighting, I mean, the story doesn't, I mean, I haven't even got to Yushalayim in the eight days yet. That's coming, that's coming soon. But there's a lot of, a lot of intrigue, a lot of, a lot of difficulty. One year into the rebellion, the rise up against the Greeks, Matasyahu calls his son Yehuda. Yehuda's not the oldest of the sons. He's actually the third of the five. Um, but he recognizes Yehuda as a natural leader. He's a natural warrior, and he's going to be his successor. He blesses Yehuda to be bold like Pinchas, their ancestor, like the great Pinchas. And Matasyahu dies of natural causes. He's the only one in the family who's going to die of natural causes. Yehuda goes out as the new leader. He inscribes a, a word on his shield, on his battle shield. You know what the word is? Maccabi. Maccabi. He's actually, even though people get this name wrong, he's the only one, technically, that should be called Yehuda HaMaccabi. There weren't Maccabees. I don't think there were even Maccabees. Uh, there weren't Maccabees for sure. There was one, and then the brothers who were really Hashmonaim. So he inscribes the word Maccabi. What does it stand for? So some say it stands for its attribute to his father, Matisyao Cohen Ben Yochanan. Okay, that could be. Um, but the more popular, common way is reminding that he's all, he's all for Hashem. Mi chamocha ba'elim Hashem. Who is like you among the gods? Right? That's, that's, what, that's what he does. It's dedica dedicated really to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Lots of war, lots of battles, lots of, lots of uh, intrigue. In the end, Antiochus, the big bad guy, becomes ill, he dies a very slow, agonizing, grisly, grisly, disgusting death. And Antiochus, it's interesting, sometimes the non-Jews see the hand of God where Jews are blind to it. He recognizes, no, in the end, he thought, remember, he was the one who thought that when he came to the temple and he built the, uh, the big pagan statue, he thought that he'd beat God and he realizes with his bitter end, this can't be a coincidence. This must be Mesa Shem Haisazos, that this all comes from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And he's, he's, he's mock here. He realizes this at the end, and it's too late. 
Uh, and there are others that take over. Yehuda is so successful, eventually he captures Jerusalem. He sends the enemies, he doesn't quite get rid of the Greeks. Most of them take refuge inside the Chakra fortress in the, in the southern area of the city. Um, Yehuda comes in and the first step is to destroy the many, many, many pagan idols. And it takes him a period of eight days to finally get rid of the Shmutz. They restore the Heichal, the, uh, the, the holy temple. They rebuild the Mizbeach according to Halacha. They rebuild Klei Kodesh. He's got a whole battalion of people who are not only warriors, but they're artisans. They're able to recreate the holy vessels that are needed for the base of Mikdash. And after eight days, they finally purify the base of Mikdash. And guess what they find inside? This part you know. Tiny little flask of oil. Tiny little flask of oil that's actually a harbinger that we find a, we find this in next week's parsha, parsha's Vayishlach. Yaakov Avinu goes back when he's about to, that's when he wrestles with the angel. Do you remember what he goes back for? He goes back for pachin ketanim, little bits of oil. Because he went back, he was makpi to serve Hashem so carefully, Yaakov Avinu, so in the future, right now, at this point in history, his descendants will be mak, will be zochim, will, be, will merit finding this little flask of oil. It's pure oil. How do they know that it's pure oil? Right, exactly, exactly. All the other oil was opened and impurified by the uh, by the Greeks in their in their zeal to, to to worship their pagan deities. And one little flask of oil they overlooked. It had the seal of the Kohen Gadol, the, the kosher holy Kohen Gadol, not Yason, not Menelaus, but the good guys. It had the seal on it. And on the twenty fifth of Kislev, later this month, three years to the day after the base of Mikdash had been defiled. They rededicate the base of Mikdash, and the celebration lasts eight days. That's the first Hanukkah, but in those, that period, it was not understood yet that that was going to be a permanent, eternal celebration among Klal Yisrael. And that small, pure, tiny flask of oil that was enough to last one day lasted eight days. And I refer you to the volumes that have been written addressing the base Yosef's famous kasha, do you know the famous kasha? If you don't know it, you will hear, I can't predict exactly how many, but you're going to be sitting by your Rebbe's homes in the coming days of Hanukkah, you'll hear, you'll hear many, many Divrei Torah, and many of them will cite, do you know what it is? The famous kasha, the base Yosef, or Yosef Karo? He says, how does it make sense if there was, if it was enough to light one day, but we light and commemorate the miracle for eight days, why does it make sense the miracle was only theoretically seven days? Right, the first day was no miracle. And then there are great answers, and I'm not going to give them here, because it's for another, another discussion altogether. The one light, and, and when we celebrated, it certainly, we're celebrating, commemorating a great miracle, but what it really indicates is that in the darkest chapters in history, and it happens for sure here, and if you stick with me, we, 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 we actually navigate the uh, troubled waters of Jewish history, we see it, it happens repeatedly through our history, in the worst of times, the Kaddish Baruch was there for us. Misha, uh, right, we say... Um, HaKadosh Baruch has always stood with us in our, in, our, in our dark times. That's the light coming through, for, uh, issuing through the darkness. Yeah, Aaron? Um, this was the second time this was rebuilt. Right? Oh, oh, so we haven't heard that. They purified, they have the, the rebuilding, the remodeling, or the renovations will take place during this period. It hasn't officially started yet. This will be the third time. The first version was built by Shiva Tzion. 
the first renovations were under Shimon Tzadik, the later ones are going to be under the Hashmanaim before we get to Herod. Good. Um, Yehuda becomes now the new Kohen Gadol, but not really. It's an honorary position, it's not practical. He and his brothers are constantly engaged in battle, they're constantly uh, exposed to death. Um, one of the kashas that's asked, they are from the Levim, they are Kohanim, and how is it conceivable that they could come in such proximity with death? And the different Terutzim also offer different explanations. How is that possible? Kohanim, we know, can't be near dead bodies if they have any say. The major approach is Mila Shemelai, who's for Hashem, in, in difficult times, emergency measures are called for, and uh, they have to be the man's. They have to be the men in the in the place. in a place where there aren't people doing it. They had to step forward and uh, help Klal Yisrael. Um, there's some great battle stories from this period. He defeats not only the Greeks, by the way. All the historical Jewish enemies also see an opportunity when the Jews are down. They pounce. So Edom, Esau, down in the south, they attack the Jews, and Yehuda defeats them in a place called Male Akrabim which is near the south area of the Dead Sea. There's a battle against Ammon out in a place called Yaazir. Uh, there's a big battle against the Greeks in a, place, in a tiny place called Migdal Straton. Straton's tower, which then eventually would become a, uh, the big capital city of Israel under the late, uh, during the period of, of Herod and then later on during the period of the Romans. I mean, you know what Migdal Straton becomes? Herod renames it, dedicates it, makes it has the world's first artificial port city dedicated to the king of Rome? No? That's not enough of a hint. What do they call the king of Rome? Hail Caesar. And what does Herod build? What's called in English Caesarea and Hebrew Caesarea. So that's Migdal Strato in that area. Anybody been to Caesarea before? I gotta take you around there and show. A lot of good stuff there. Caesarea is worthy to see today. Um, there'll be some defeats. There'll be many victories. Say it again. Our roads lead to Rome. The Caesarea is like the is it will it will eventually be the Caesarea for sure, for sure. That's true. It's during this period, sometime around here, when Jerusalem is rededicated to Hashem, but we're not at all out of the hot water because remember there are Greeks in and around there's still battles being fought and the Greeks are a cancer, they're a tumor just in the center of Yerushalayim itself in the Chakra Fortress and it's during this period that a new threat appears another Greek minister named Eliforni, that's his name he brings a massive force against Jerusalem and his goal is to reconquer Yerushalayim and his first step is to cut off the Jews' water supply. That's what you do in war. They can't drink. You'll eventually force them to des into desperation. They're going to they're, they're going to they're going to uh, be defeated. And there is a widow by the name of Yehudis, famous woman Yehudis. There's a book named after her, an apocryphal book named after her. Some say it's the granddaughter of Matisyahu by the oldest son Yochanan. Maybe she's the daughter. She's a widow. Her, her, her husband was killed. The, the Greeks killed him. And um, she realizes the Jews are in a terrible situation. Eliforni and, and, his, and his soldiers are threatening from the outside. The Kohanim, who are the real leaders of the Jews, 
don't know what to do, and she steps forward and rebukes them. She says, don't you see this is a Nisayon? Somebody has to do something and rise up against this Greeks, and it's a dirty job, uh, but somebody's got to do the dirty work, and she says, Davin for me. A story that sounds a little bit similar to Esther, you know, Davin on my behalf. She Davins, she fasts, she adorns herself, she makes herself beautiful, and by night, she leaves the besieged city of Jerusalem and goes out to the Greek camp. Pretty courageous. She finds the officers and she explains to them, I'm a Jewish woman, this is my maid, and um, I've given up on the Jews. I'm defecting, and because I know I'm, I'm from the Hasmonean family, I've got secret information that I think can help him. It takes a lot of courage to do that, and they accept her. They bring her, they bring her into the king. Do you know the story? Okay. They bring her into the king. Uh, he, of course, is enchanted by her. She's beautiful. She's wise. She becomes part of the, 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 the circle. She becomes part of the, uh, the whole festivities in the camp. Um, she says, each night I need to go out. Um, she has a routine going out. I need, to go, I need to go worship to the gods. Of course, she's going out to Davin to Hashem. After she's been with them for four nights, she, she persuades them that she's really on their side. She creates a major feast. And she feeds them all, and she feeds him milk. Maybe remember way back when, in the beginning of the year, somebody, another great woman feeded, fed the enemy milk and made him drowsy because milk makes you tired, and he went to sleep. Exactly the same trick. Back in the period of the Shoftim, it's during the period of Devorah, but the woman's name is Yael. She fed Sisra milk. He fell asleep, and she stuck the peg of the tent in his temple. Yehudis, probably inspired by Yael, feeds Eliforni milk. It makes him thirsty. Here are a few more complications. She says, oh, I got some wine for you. How about some wine? He drinks wine. They all drink wine. They get drunk. The guests trip away in a drunken stupor. Eliforni is left behind. He's passed out, drunk. Um, she remains alone with him. And when, no, when everybody's gone, she cuts off his head with his, with his own sword. She bundles the head under her, and she packs it up in her clothes, and as usual, she leaves the city, and they're used to her routine already. Oh, she's going out to pray, and they don't bother her, they don't notice that she's got this bag that she's carrying that's got the, uh, the Greek minister's head inside of it. She goes outside. Uh, she then, she's with her maid, she quickly, now this time around, re-enters Jerusalem. She said, look what I got. She didn't say that. But that's my, that's my, that's my uh, recreating the story. Uh, so she re-enters Jerusalem. Uh, she displays the head to all the Jews. They recognize Hashem's miracle. Uh, they bow down to Hashem. The next morning, the Greeks come in. They find the headless body of their minister. They look outside and they see his head presented prominently on the walls of Jerusalem. And in terror, they turn on one another, and they trip over each other, and they flee. And a great, a great defeat is, is, uh, is, is rendered, a great miracle is uh, with, at the hand of Yehudis. It's because of this, because of this, the... Uh, thank you. We'll be another five minutes. Yeah, great. Uh, because of this Hanukkah, the Hanukkah celebration, there's a special, um, special school for women. We say, they were also involved in the miracle, predominantly because of Yehudis and the miracle. Uh, and um, they don't, among other things, halachically, they don't do work during the time that the, the candles are lit. Uh, the men is to eat milk products during Hanukkah because of, because of the story. 
Um, there were some heroes during these days, during these difficult days. Now, the Chachamim the, the, the will purify the base of Mikdash. They go and they take measures against the Greek, the Hellenized Jews. Um, the Mishnah Sukkah tells us about a certain Maisa de Miriam. Uh, there was a Greek assimilated daughter of one of the Mishmaros. Remember the Kohanim are organized into 24 families? Well, a daughter of one of the families was, a, was a, from Bilga. Miriam came from base Bilga. She married a Greek soldier. And the scene is like this. This is the last daf of the Gemara in, in, in Sukkah. It says that she went up to the Ezra's Kohanim, to the inner Azara where they offer on the Mizbeach inside the... Uh, in the temple compound. This is all before the revolt really uh, took, took place. And while the Greeks were on top, she went over the famous scene. She went over to the Mizbeach. She kicked the Mizbeach. We have some good guys, some bad guys. She's just one of the villains. She screams to Kaddish Baruch Hu, locus, locus, a Greek word for wolf, wolf. How long will you force the Jewish people to use up their money on korbanos? It demands so much from them, and it's, it's a very Greek idea, which he's really conveying. You know, this idea that why would you, why would you insist that we spend our hard-earned money on worshiping you? We should enjoy it ourselves. Isn't this world meant for us? I mean, in many ways, it's the antithesis of what we believe. We no, no. We only have nice things to dedicate to Baruch Hu. Our goal is to infuse the physical with spiritual. That's that's what we're doing in this universe. She obviously didn't get a good education. She didn't understand that. Uh, she said, you don't even stand up to them as locusts, you wolf, in the time of their need. Well, that made a misimpression. And nobody ever forgot that. And now, several years have passed. The Chachamim are now back on top. And they need to redress. They have to make sure. They have to make a statement. Because when you don't respond and somebody did something wrong, you're implying that they did okay. They did something right. Chazal expressed it, dami. Uh, silence, as it were, is tacit approval. They're not going to give approval. So they penalized not only Miriam, but the whole Mishmar, the whole household of Bilga, base Bilga, is punished with several steps. And this is actually part of the story of the base of Mikdash. Did anybody look and study that model of the base of Mikdash? Because if you did, you saw in the Azara, right between the Mizbeach and the area where the Sanhedrin Gedola sits, there were 24 rings coming out of the coming out of the the, um, the plaza the floor level each ring corresponded to a different uh, mishmar of the kohanim and what it was used for is when they sacrificed the animal they first shechted the animal by putting the head of the animal in the ring and that made it easier more efficient to shech the animal Bilga, Bilga's ring was turned upside down. Notice this because sometimes you'll see pictures of the model of the second temple and you'll and, and, and if the Artist really knew their stuff and knows knows uh, knows Chazal. Um, sometimes those pictures, the models are built, and you see the twenty-four rings, and you'll notice one of them is turned upside down, and then now you know the story. It's based Bilga's ring. They penalized them, and they, that meant that whenever Bilga, when their week came up for service in the temple, that meant that they shamefacedly had to go over one of the other mishmaros and say, uh, <clears throat> "Could we borrow your ring this week? We don't have one to use." Right. So that was their that was their penalty. Uh, every family is responsible for the education of their kids. They didn't they didn't properly educate Miriam, and they have other penalties too that are that are um, addressed to them. A year after the initial dedication of the uh, of the base of Mikdash, Chazal are now we realize 
The themes of Hanukkah are eternal themes. The, the, the sense that this time of year, it's eternally Hanukkah. They have the understanding to realize this is the time of year that we're going to give praise and thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Uh, The Gemara says, uh, At a different year, you know, think about holidays. When, it, when non-Jews have holidays, usually they're commemorating some kind of distant historical event. It's not the way our holidays work. We say every year it's Pesach, because every year it's literally Pesach. We're not just commemorating Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Right now, everybody's going out of Egypt, and all the eternal themes that Pesach represents are happening simultaneously. Whether you're aware of it or not, that's your own problem. But that's what's really happening. That's why the Rambam says, Behold or, because I'll say, Behold or, Chayav Adam Liros Esatzmo. Every generation, a man has to see as if he personally came out of Egypt, because literally that's what's happening. Rambam changes the gears, says, Laharos, to show himself. We're supposed to demonstrate going out of Egypt. And that's really what's going on. On Tisha B'Av, the base of Mikdash is, is being destroyed in our generation. And literally it is, because every generation that doesn't rebuild the temple, it's as if the temple was destroyed then. So that's what they needed to, to they needed to wait a year to make sure that Hanukkah wasn't just a passing thing, that the themes of, of, holi- of, of the holiday, of the commemoration, would be eternal themes, the struggle against the Greeks, everything the Greeks stand for. And indeed, it's as urgent today, I would assert to you, than, any, than, 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 than ever, t- ever in history, um, we still haven't vanquished the Greeks. They're with us, they're overwhelming us, and, so, um, and that's what they were waiting for. They realized the themes were eternal. Um, they make several takanos, in addition to now Hanukkah being an official celebration, uh, there was, under the Greeks, there were 13 places in the base of Mikdash that people used to worship paganism. So now, from this point on in the Second Temple period, the Minhag in the base of Mikdash was Jews would go in and bow in 13 different stations all around the area of the compound of the base of Mikdash to commemorate the miracle of Hashem. And there are many other takanos that are made to commemorate uh, Hashem's salvation. They... Um, In the end, as you're going to see in the coming days, next week, it was a Pyrrhic victory. You know, they won the battle, but they lose the war. The Hellenists will come back with a vengeance. The descendants of the Hashmonaim themselves will actually become some of the great Hellenizers, some of the great villain, villains who become more Greek than the Greeks. And so the reason why there's not a major emphasis on the military victory, because it was a temporary victory, what we're really celebrating is Kanish Baruch takes care of us. That's, that's, the me, that's the meta theme of Hanukkah, not that this particular episode in history ended that, that well. <coughs> um, in fact, the book of Chasmonaim was not composed by the rabbis, not composed by Chazal. If you ever study the book of Chasmonaim, one thing, you won't find any mention of the lighting of the candles the, uh, or the miracle. Josephus is also another problematic historical source. He also skips that part of the story. That's not important to us. It's everything. It's where Hashem shines through. But um, the author of Sefer Chashmonim was probably a tzaduki. Remember that Sadok, this, this sect who also, you know, they, they were more Greek than Jewish. Uh, and their interest was to minimize the fame of the, of the great miracle. Uh, yeah. So that's, in a nutshell, the immediate Hanukkah story, which is really all about a Kaddish Baruch Hu and much less about people. And, our, and ourselves, and um, we'll talk about its legacy on Sunday.